I was quite good at like hiding it, but by that point I was even drinking in the mornings um, because my withdrawals would be so bad that I'd wake up and have the shakes. So I'd have to like take a couple of shots in the morning before I went to work. I was, so I was always a little bit drunk, always. But I didn't realize, it's so funny when you're doing it, like not funny haha, but funny strange, but <laughs> that you don't realize. I would have said that I didn't drink during the week. But that's not true. I even drank in the morning. It's, it's so funny. Um, but I knew that I had a problem because I finally was able to sort of like drink in like a normal way. I was able to now like go to bars and stuff, which I'd never been allowed to do before. And like I said, go out after work with colleagues. I started like online dating and I just got myself into some really bad situations. I could never sleep. I was just miserable. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Now here at Tribe Sober, we enable people to not only change their relationship with alcohol, but to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe, here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. Hi Janet, I've got a small Friday win. I went through quite an emotional time from last week's Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. Uh, personal issues with my relationship and my mother, so boyfriend and mother. Um, both were very, very intense and normally... As I did previously, I'd reach for the booze, but I didn't. And I felt all my emotions and I went through it and it was incredibly painful. However, I dealt with it a lot better because of my sober mind. And everything's been resolved now and everyone is happy again and uh, doing well. And I just feel that overall my sobriety helped me through it and reaching for the booze would have been the wrong decision, even though the cravings were immensely intense. And of course, uh, Lindy was my inspiration for what she's been through recently. And um, she keeps me strong thinking of her story. So that's my Friday win. Thank you. So if you want to join our community and get a bit of support, just go to tribesober.com and click on the Join Our Tribe button. So let's get to this week's guest. Cece Reagan is a recovering addict and a domestic abuse survivor. With a really difficult upbringing and then an abusive partner, the odds were stacked against Cece and she became an alcoholic, but she also found solace in her writing. 
As she puts it, writing has been paramount in her healing process and it's saved her life many times. Not only has she saved her own life, but she's helping others to heal, using the power of poetry and writing. Let's have a listen to her inspirational story. I'm Cece. I live in Newcastle in the UK and I've been here for a few years now, but I'm originally from uh, North Carolina in the States. <laughs> so it's quite a bit of a change. Let's go back to your teenage years. You, you've had um, quite a difficult life, Cece. I appreciate that. But all the more amazing that you're doing all this work that you're doing now and, and helping other people. So let, let's go back to your teenage years where I gather you were diagnosed with PTSD and living with your alcoholic father. So can you take us back to those days and, and take us forward from there maybe? Yeah, okay. So um, my dad was always an alcoholic and so was his dad. Um, it kind of runs in the family. I, I find that sometimes with people in recovery, we kind of come by it honestly. Yeah, I was living with him. My parents were married for 19, almost 20 years. Um, they had me and my sister, um, who I'm six years older than her. It was mostly like um, emotional abuse and things, but there was some like some like physical and sexual abuse in my childhood as well. Um, that I was able to shield my sister from, but like my family didn't really know and my mom didn't really know until I finally told them and it was a whole thing. Um, but my parents still stayed together after that. That was sort of the beginning of like the marker for me that was sort of that I came second, that it was more about like keeping up appearances and making other people happy than it was about what I wanted or my safety. And obviously I was a kid, I wasn't necessarily saying this is how I feel, but I like internalized that. In a really short space of time, my parents separated. My mom like finally had enough and my dad left. And then uh, I was like 14 years old. My uncle, who was my dad's brother, um, he was a youth pastor at the local church and like a pillar of the community. And he was like who I viewed as my dad he sort of like filled that void for me he passed away and then two weeks after that my dad tried to commit suicide and was in the hospital um basically for an overdose and then my mom got diagnosed with a terminal illness motor neuron disease as is known in the uk it's called als or lou gehrig's disease in the state but it all happened very quickly and then in february of the following year this is in like november december then february of the following year she got married to my stepdad and then immediately fell pregnant on like a oops hello <laughs> there's another human coming into the world a couple months after that it was all in very very rapid succession and uh, I started drinking during that time. And my family, they sort of noticed like something's wrong with Cece. And they went through my, um, they went through my bathroom. I had like, I had the old master bedroom. So I had like my own bathroom and I had like empty bottles, razor blades, laxatives, all kinds of things like hidden under the sink. I mean, I say hidden, you open a cabinet. I wasn't really, it was quite obvious what I was doing. I guess I wanted their attention, but with mom being sick and with the new baby in the house and the new husband and the whole thing, it was like, it was quite difficult to get attention. 
Um, and how old were you uh, at this stage? Uh, 15, 16. So they had this like intervention thing where my aunt picked me up from school and they had sort of everything like in a box in the middle of the sunroom and my mom sitting there and my my grandfather had come up from Carolina and everybody and and they were like, we have an emergency appointment scheduled with a psychiatrist uh, for tomorrow and you're going. <laughs> and I was like, cool, that sounds good. <laughs> like probably I could use some help. Like it would be nice to have somebody that I can talk to. Uh, so I went and that's when I got diagnosed with PTSD. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. What, what age were you when you left home? I moved out when I was 17 and moved in with an abusive boyfriend. Yes, yes, I had gathered that. And then you had yeah. seven years with him, didn't you? Yes, I did. Oh, and, and I guess your drinking carried on and probably yeah. got worse during that time. Did he drink a lot? Oh, totally. We definitely, like, fed that for each other. I was 17, but he was 25. So he was well over the drinking age and it was quite easy for him to just like pop, you know, to the store and get whatever I wanted. Uh, And then it became drinking to cope with what was going on with him as well as like just the pain of watching my mom die. You know, she passed away when I was 19. So we were together for a few years before she died and they all hated him. And it was just like, it was just a nightmare. And it was like just the perfect storm (laughs) of like feeling like I needed to drink more to cope and then having it so like readily available because whatever I needed, I could just ask him for and he will go get it. So we both drank a lot, a lot. We would both drink like a bottle of whiskey each a night, like a big bottle. So, Cece, what what a rough and difficult time you you had of it. And and amazingly, um, you left that relationship and and got sober on the 1st of January 2016. So, first of all, I wanted to say huge well done. You know, I would say someone like yourself, the odds were stacked against you, really. And somehow you, you did this amazing thing. So tell us how, you know, how did you manage to leave this guy and how did you get sober Well, I was planning on leaving. Um, I had wanted to leave for a while. The thing was, is is like what these abusers do is they just isolate you. And then after my mom died, I had no contact with my family for a good couple of years. So I was well and truly alone um, for a good long time. And I was just sort of doing the best I could. And, you know, you're like in your formative years. I'm like in my late teens and early 20s trying to figure out who I am. I was just sort of content to stay there or maybe not so much content to stay as I just felt like I was stuck and there was nothing else. And then we were working together. Uh, we actually worked together at a computer shop. We lived together. We shared the same car. There was like nothing that I could do, nowhere I could go that he wasn't there. But then I got a job um, at an apartment complex, like being an assistant manager there. Well, I started as leasing consultant and I worked my way up and I ended up having my own office and whatever. And uh, I really loved what I did and I loved working with the people and I loved my boss and she was independent and strong and her relationship was so different from mine. And she like could wear what she wanted and go and do what she wanted and go out after work. And I was like, 
is this what it's supposed to be like? Is this what people do? She, you know, it's not like she had it all together, but she was like far and above <laughs> better than what I had going on. So I was like, well, I kind of want this. And she started having an effect on me standing up for myself more and saying, actually, you know, all that my colleagues and I are going out after work and I want to go. And then I would just go. <laughs> and then uh, he was really mad. And one time he started to be really resentful of the job. He really like hated who I worked with. It was quite obvious. He was he was just awful um, the way that he would treat me. Finally, the night that I left, I had been planning on, like I had been viewing apartments and was like in the process of filling out applications and getting a deposit together for a different place to live. I was already looking for somewhere else, but you have to be like, you have to be careful and you have to be clever. And he didn't know that was going on. Uh, but I had to work late one night. It was like right before Halloween. I guess this might've been 2014. And I was planning for like the Halloween party. We were having a big Halloween party for the whole apartment complex and we were decorating and the whole deal. And I got home late. I got home at like 10 or 11. My ex was there with his friend and they had been drinking a lot and they might have been doing something else, but I'm not really sure. But when I got there, he was asleep in his car. So I woke him up and uh, I really wish I hadn't woke him up. <laughs> uh, his friend ended up leaving, but that night he like, he went to the kitchen and he got a really big knife and he had me like pinned down on on the bed in our bedroom and was like screaming in my face and he was saying all these horrible things and I can't remember everything that he said but just calling me a bunch of different names and saying really mean things about my mom just being like so vicious just the the things that he thought that he could say to hurt me the most and he said that he was gonna kill me and he was gonna kill our dogs he had two dogs and then he was gonna kill himself. And he kept talking about his dad and how like his dad had, had committed suicide and that he like, he went out in like the only real way. And it was very strange. And it was almost like an out of body experience. Like I kind of remember looking down on myself and being like, this is where I die. And my grandparents are gonna have to like drive up from Carolina and like do all the things. And I'm gonna be the statistic of like another woman killed by her partner. And I was like, so sure. But I guess he was so out of it that he just got up and then he went out into the living room and I was in the back bedroom. He had fixed all the doors. So he had either taken them off the hinges or fixed them to where they wouldn't lock. So I couldn't keep him out of anywhere. But I went like all the way around the corner into like our little bedroom and I like scrooched down onto the floor and I called the police and I told them that I thought that he was gonna kill me. And then they came they held him outside and I grabbed the emergency bag that I already had packed and some clothes and I threw everything in my car and I drove away. Wonderful. So that was the, the beginning of your new life, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. It was like a lot of stuff had to happen first, but it, I mean, I just, I look back and that was like the world started to open up. I just didn't know how yeah. to deal with it then. Yeah. And you, you were still drinking at that point, I presume. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, how did how did the change in the drinking happen? Was it your new friends telling you that um, maybe you were hitting it a bit hard, or no. <laughs> did you like work it out for yourself? 
<laughs> I uh, know the people that I was hanging out with were very much like um, enabling me, I suppose. I was quite good at like hiding it, but by that point I was even drinking in the mornings um, because my withdrawals would be so bad that I'd wake up and have the shakes. So I'd have to like take a couple of shots in the morning before I went to work. I was, so I was always a little bit drunk, always. But I didn't realize, it's so funny when you're doing it, like not funny haha, but funny strange, but, <laughs> that you don't realize. I would have said that I didn't drink during the week, but that's not true. I even drank in the morning. It's, it's so funny. Um, but I knew that I had a problem because I finally was able to sort of like drink in like a normal way. I was able to now like go to bars and stuff, which I'd never been allowed to do before. And like I said, go out after work with colleagues. I started like online dating and I just got myself into some really bad situations. I could never sleep. I was just miserable. And I like wrecked a car and I was like, you know, I think I'm gonna try to quit. And I would do, so I did a like 12 step program cause that's all I knew that existed. <laughs> that's what my dad had done and that's what everybody talked about. Uh, so that's what I did. I went to my first meeting and I didn't do anything that they suggested. <laughs> I just did whatever I wanted to do, but I did feel better. Like I would go for a certain amount of time you know, I'd go for like five days or one time I went for 90 days and then I texted my friend and I was like, I just made 90 days sober. And he was like, cool, let's go celebrate. And I was like, cool. <laughs> and then I got drunk. It was like, it didn't make any sense, but it was how I was. And then um, at that point I had moved to um, like a proper roommate situation like in a really nice area with a girl that I had gone to school with and we knew each other for a long time. So I felt really safe there. And even though it was my own personal space, I was still like hiding bottles. I would hide <laughs> bottles and like my boots and stuff. Um, you know, like when you just, and, and my, my friend would come over and she would be like, she would go to like, you know, borrow a pair of shoes. She'd like want to try on my boots or whatever, you know how we do. And she would be like, there's, a fucking liquor bottle in your boots, you see, and I'd be like, oh yeah, I, there was no reason to do that, it was just this, like, I just felt so ashamed, um, and that was, like, when I was trying to get sober, it took me, like, a year that I would go to meetings, and then I'd go drink, and then I'd, whatever, I'd, like, drink on the weekends, I tried moderation, I tried whatever, I guess because I was in my early 20s, I thought, the idea of never drinking again hmm. just sounded like giving up on fun or, or something. And also, I didn't know how to how to live without it. By that point, after what had happened with my ex, my anxiety was through the roof. My PTSD had graduated and got its diploma and was now complex PTSD. <laughs> like we were I was like on the road to I have no fucking clue how to do this. Um, and how to live without that and how to feel feelings and then what feelings even are. So how did, did how did you find your people? Because I think that's the key. And like you, I've been to AA and they weren't my people either. Yeah, I, it took m moving to another country. 
what happened was I was doing like this long distance thing with my now husband there, then boyfriend. And he um, invited me to come to England and stay for six months and just sort of like see how it went because we were thinking about like me moving here to England or him moving to the States. We weren't really sure. Um, and I was like, well, let me just go and move there um, for six months, which is the longest you can stay without a visa and just see how it goes. And the last night I got drunk was the New Year's Eve before that. So December 31st, 2015. I went to a party that I wasn't invited to <laughs> and I made an ass of myself and I don't remember. And apparently I had to be like escorted out and like I couldn't walk and I woke up at a family member's house and I had no idea how I got there and didn't have any of my stuff. And we all know this song and dance. Um, and it wasn't the first time that that had happened to me by any means. But I was sitting on the front porch with this family member smoking a Marlboro Light because it's North Carolina and that's what you do. <laughs> and uh, she was like, what are you going to do, Cece? Like you're supposed to leave for England in like a couple of weeks what are you gonna do? And I was like, well, I don't know, but I don't want to do this anymore. I white-knuckled it <laughs> for a couple of weeks. Uh, I think I probably went to a couple other meetings, uh, you know, full of like, especially where I was at in rural Carolina at that time, the average age was probably 60 um, of the people in the meetings and stuff. And, and again, like mostly men, but I still went um, because it was like, again, really all that I knew. And then I moved uh, for six months to England <laughs> and then I again was just white knuckling it. I was so afraid um, Alcohol was even more readily available here, which I didn't realize you could just go to like the corner shop and get a bottle It was like so easy. It was so easy and I was like I felt like I went out of the frying pan into the fire because I was <laughs> I was isolated I had no job like I didn't know anybody other than my my husband and like his work colleagues and stuff that we had gone out a couple of times. I had no I had no friends. I found a meeting. <laughs> I found a meeting that was down the street and around the corner and I asked him to walk me to it and I went to it and there was a lady there who came up to me because I had said that I was new. Obviously, I had a foreign accent, so everybody wanted to talk to me <laughs> and figure out who I was and where I was from and why I was there. And I was just really honest. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just here because I have nowhere else to go and I don't know anybody. And like, please, dear God, help me. Because if I am the same person and do the exact same things here that I did back home, then I might as well just give up. Like, that's legitimately how I felt. So this lady came up to me, who now I know is, like, one of the, like, pillar people, and told, gave me her phone number and said, there's a women's meeting at this place. If you can get to this metro station at this time, I'll pick you up from there. And I said, okay, random person that I've never met before, I will get in your car. <laughs> And then I did that. I like called her and confirmed and I went to the metro stop and I got in her car and she drove me to the meeting and I got a whole bunch of more numbers and I went for coffee with people and I made plans with people and I followed up with those plans and I found the people that I liked by giving them a chance <laughs> which yeah. I had never yeah. done before and I th and it was just down to uh, desperation, I guess it was down to like isolation and not knowing anybody and so badly 
wanting to feel better and be better and know how to live without drinking that I was just willing to do what was suggested finally and one day at a time I haven't drank again you're listening to a podcast from tribe sober if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab that's www.tribesober.com wonderful Beautiful story that, yeah, because um, you, you were really ready, weren't you? You were kind of mm. desperate. You were reaching out. You were um, you prepared to take what you what you felt was a bit of a risk getting in a stranger's car, but because you were you would just do everything, and you found your people. And for me, that's that's the key, you know, because we until we find other people that are like us that we can see as role models that we can relate to, it doesn't quite work. So let's talk about recovery now. Um, it seems that you're you're a talented writer, and writing was one of the things that saved you, really. Yeah. So talk to us about your writing. Were you journaling uh, through the your sobriety? Yeah, I. Well, I've always written, and I really like poetry. Um, I was one of those uh, emo kid teenagers <laughs> who wrote really angsty poetry <laughs> and made really uh, challenging dark collages. I was one of those kids. Um, but I, I still have an Anne of Green Gables journal from when I was like, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. I always wrote things down. Um, like, my dad was a writer as well, who was quite a good writer. Um, so I think... Part of it was like when I was a kid, I wanted to sort of like emulate him and make him proud. But then it became my own thing. Um, and I really fell in love with poetry. And so I found it so grounding to like put pen to paper and to say what I was feeling to no one but myself. Um, because there was like, there was no judgment. There was no fear of repercussions. I was, I could say whatever I wanted to my pretty journal and it didn't matter I could I could just be weird and I could be honest and and it was only for me and so you know I like I said I struggle with anxiety and things I would have panic attacks and I would write <laughs> like I would either journal or I would just write everything that I was feeling or I would write poetry through like panic attacks I have one called Bleeding Out, <laughs> which is in like my book that I wrote during a panic attack. Um, and then it was very much for recovery. It was self-exploration. It was who am I? I've been drinking since I was 14 years old. I was now in my mid-20s and I didn't know who I, I was or how to exist without drinking. And I didn't even have names for my feelings because I had only chased numbness for so long that when I felt like keyed up or something, I didn't know the difference between fear and excitement. I couldn't tell. Um, it all felt the same to me. And uh, I would get really overwhelmed and cry and I didn't know why I was crying. I, and then I could write it down and I could say like, I'm crying, this is going on and this is whatever and this is what I'm thinking and then I could kind of get down to the bottom of it. I remember one time my husband and I were making Mexican food because I love Mexican food and it, Mexican food in the UK just ain't it, chief. It just is not very good. So I was like, I'll just, I'll make my own. Um, and he, he like wanted to make the tortillas from scratch 
And instead of me being like, that's a really like difficult thing to do, let's not do that. Uh, I was just like, okay. And then they weren't coming out right. And the kitchen was a mess. And I just felt so overwhelmed. And then I went into the bathroom and I was sobbing and I was texting my Nima, <laughs> my grandmother. And I was like, I'm so upset right now and this is going on. And she was like, well, you know, Cece, why don't you just go out there and tell him how you're feeling that you like feel overwhelmed. And I was like, oh, you mean I could just say that? <laughs> you mean I could just say to another person how I feel? Like that was such a novel concept. I was never able to do that or allowed to do that before. So then I was like, hey, I think that I'm feeling really homesick and I'm really overwhelmed because I feel like I don't have control of my surroundings right now. Can we like clean up the kitchen and pause this? Let's order a takeaway from that Indian place I really like. And let's pick the Mexican food back up tomorrow because I just can't deal with it. Holy shit, like what an, <laughs> what an amazing thing. But I, I, I couldn't have done that before. I had to be able to sort of like to work it out and figure out what I was feeling and why before I could even think about possibly communicating that. So yeah, because you know what happens, Cece, they say that our emotional maturity stalls at the age that we start drinking heavily. So your emotional maturity, which is obviously being able to express one's one's feelings, you never learned how to do that. You were just dampening it all down for 10 years. And then when you finally stopped drinking, all these feelings came out. And of course, it was overwhelming. I hope you got a good response when you told him you were overwhelmed. Did he understand? Yeah, he was lovely. Like, he's he's, he's so lovely. I'm like, I feel so fortunate. But yeah, he's, he's just really patient and really supportive. And even if he doesn't get it, he's just like, I trust you, whatever. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. But I believe that that's your experience. So that's fine. Um... Yeah, it's just, and and a lot of it was, like, trying to then trust myself. Because if you've never, like, really made decisions for yourself, and you've only ever made, like, drunk decisions, then how do you know that your choices are any good? <laughs> how do yeah, you know? Yeah, you kind of lose your, you're not in touch with your intuition, are you? Yeah. So, so yeah, it's like, yeah. did I do the right thing moving to the UK yeah. for six months away from my family? Because I really miss them. Um, did I did I do the right thing deciding to apply for that job and not that one? I accepted that job. Was that a problem? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about starting my own business. Is that a terrible idea? There's like, you just, you can't trust yourself. You can't, I could, well, I mean, for me, I couldn't even trust myself to like pick up a, a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you had a lot of work to do at that stage. Yeah. So uh, tell me how this evolved into helping other people because that's... Uh, that's a wonderful thing to do to heal yourself, to help other people to heal. I wanted to make what I didn't have what I wish that I had. So I decided that I was going to start Right to Heal. And it's a, like a community for other survivors of addiction, abuse, and trauma who want to heal through writing like I have. And I do workshops about journaling and about poetry I did like a one day workshop. Um, It was just an evening thing with a friend about bullet journaling. (laughs) Um, Like anything that has to do with writing, I like to just do little things for people, little free things. And then I like I run my community and I run a free Facebook group. It just, it was something that I wanted to do. And then slowly over time, it became an actual 
thing, <laughs> like a physical thing that I could look at and say, this is the idea. It just sort of like manifested itself over time. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. My, my journey is similar, you know, my Tribe Sober. It began as a blog. I started blogging the first day that I stopped drinking. And somehow that blog has evolved into a community, you know, yeah. like you. It, it just happens and it feels right when, when something else comes into it. So I'll put everything in the show notes, but just um, tell us how people can find you and your courses and your poetry, etc. Yeah, if you just go to ccreagan.com, everything is there. Um, you can follow me on Instagram, at ccreagan, if you're an Instagram person. <laughs> or you can find me on Facebook, <laughs> um, whatever you like. But everything is there, and I always put, like, if you want to do one of my free things, I have free resources like writing prompts and, uh, like, a email like journaling workshop thing that you can get like a, a prompt to your email every single day of a video of me I have all sorts of different things so if you just go to my website you can find all of that yeah that sounds amazing Cece because we're always telling people you know that journaling is one of the top tools that that you can use and but some people um, yeah, like you I, I love writing although I've never really published everything but some um, for me, that, that helped with the healing. But not everybody is, is like us. You know, a lot of people yeah. say, oh, I don't write, you know, or, or maybe they write for a living and the last one they want, want to do is write, you know, in a journal. So, you know, I think something like uh, you're talking about could, could really help a lot of people. Um, so, so tell me how it feels to be five years sober. You're looking fabulous. <laughs> do you feel as good as you look? <laughs> That's the question. What's it like inside Cece? Oh, bless you. Yeah, it's it's honestly amazing. I I couldn't believe it when I when I was like celebrating five years because I just uh, it feels like another life sometimes. Um, and I had a lot of like I just carried so much shame around it for so long, um, and now I just feel so proud. <laughs> Yeah, and so it, you should. Thank you. And it feels good to, to feel proud. Um, and it feels good to look back on the that person. And instead of feeling like shame or instead of feeling like frustrated or angry or whatever at that person, that I can just like have compassion. And yeah. I can have compassion for myself now if I'm <laughs> having a rough time or having a difficult day or whatever. Like I, sometimes I miss my mom and sometimes like, you know, life still happens just because I stopped drinking doesn't mean that like I've lost people, you know, life still happens, but I can cope with things now and I can trust myself now. And I know that I'm like a good friend and I'm a good granddaughter to my grandparents and like, and I just do the best I can. And it feels so good, like to go to bed every night, knowing that I did everything that I could. And then to wake up in the morning and like know where all my shit is and, and know that I haven't done anything horrible. I don't have to check my phone and go through my messages and what have I sent and you know, where have I gone and do I have all my stuff? It just feels so like free and relaxed and you know, now I live in another country and I'm like married and I have a little puppy and <laughs> and two businesses and and I never even thought that I would live this long. Like I didn't think that I would even make it to this age. And it's like, it's truly miraculous. And I feel so grateful every single day. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. 
It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Yeah, well, feel grateful and proud. You know, the, the, the odds were stacked against you and the fact that you've created this life you have now is uh, shows what an amazingly strong person you are. So you. you'll go far, Cece. Oh, thanks, darling. <laughs> Would you like to end off by reading us one of your poems? Oh, sure I can. Um, so I'll read Edges. This is from my book that I published last year uh, called Wasted, a fucking genius poetry collection. <laughs> Which is my favorite name for a book ever, because it has a bad word in it. Edges. It's not a shiny thing, a room full of coffee cups, and the shakes, and the voices of people telling all the same story, just wrapped up a little different. It isn't easy. They come in and out, and you pray to the higher power you created, or discovered, or whatever, to just please, please, don't let that be you, just for one more day. Just today. You white-knuckle that shit at first, though. You're the one in and out, the one who makes people with more than a few days remember, really remember, how it felt to not know how to feel. And the ones with time, they think God is not them, and they do what they can, and they hope that you get it before you die. These people, these people with time, that you think must be lying, because who can go years without their vice? They've heard the sad news, and they've been to the funerals, they have seen and they know and they see you and cling ever tighter. And maybe you see them back and you try to hang on too. Relax those white knuckles just a little bit. Try to believe in their belief. Try not to drown. And then you're writing. You're writing all the damn time and you're powerless and stepping. And now you have to admit how much you fucked your life up. Honestly, you've done a horrible job at just about everything, but that's all right. Because you're going to start over. You're going to learn all about yourself. Addicts love that. We love ourselves. Just usually a more curated version. So now you're going to learn the truth part. And you keep writing. And petrify yourself by saying the slogans all the damn time. And sit in rooms with people you come to love. You love these people. The ones who suffer and smile and hug you hello. You are them. You know that now. And even in the middle there is peace. Like the center of a wake trailing behind a boat. You just avoid the edges. Beautiful, Cece. Yeah, well done. Okay, uh, let me ask you one last question. There'll be people listening to this that probably drink too much and they're thinking, (laughs) oh, you know, I wish I could do this. What, What would you say to inspire them? I would say that everybody has this incredible strength inside of them. Everybody does. And we just think that we don't sometimes. We just tell ourselves that we can't do something and we tell ourselves that enough that we start to believe it. Our brains will lie to us because they want to keep us safe and anything new seems unsafe. But the real thing that's unsafe and the real thing that would be such a shame is to be stuck and to never find that incredible strength and resilience that you have inside you. I would say think about all the things that you've done and that you've overcome already and remember who the fuck you are. You can do whatever you want to do. There you heard me talking to Cece Reagan. Let's pick out a few highlights from that conversation. 
Cece's father was an alcoholic and so was her first partner. That seems to be quite a common pattern because if we grow up with an alcoholic parent, it feels kind of normal and comforting to build a relationship with another alcoholic. It feels a bit like coming home. Cece eventually managed to leave her partner after seven years and she went to AA because the 12 steps were the only thing she knew about. She was so much younger than the other people there and she didn't really fit in. So we talked a bit about the importance of finding your people. Moving to the UK enabled her to make a break with her previous lifestyle once and for all. It was really difficult at first because apart from her boyfriend, she knew nobody and she felt really isolated. But in fact, it was this isolation that drove her to find another AA group. And eventually she managed to find an AA group with people that she could relate to and she was open and she tried really hard to make a change and it worked for her. And she managed to get sober on the 1st of January 2016. However, as Cece puts it, getting sober is just not drinking. Recovering is another animal. That's really interesting and it reminds me of the two-step process that we use. You know, first of all, stop drinking and then create a life you don't want to escape from. When CC became sober, she was feeling emotions that she'd buried for years. She was finally mourning her mother six years after her passing. She was recognising her systematic abuse that she'd endured for seven years. She was working through her traumas, for which she feels that drinking was merely a symptom. And most importantly, she was writing. She wrote poetry, short stories and journal entries. She wrote during panic attacks. She wrote for her 12-step program and for her therapist. She shared what she was going through. She published a poetry anthology and then she started a community for people like her. At Tribe Sober, we always recommend that our members keep a journal. Early sobriety is a difficult time as all those emotions bubble to the surface. Those emotions we've been numbing with alcohol for years. And writing doesn't come naturally to everybody. So if you'd like a bit of help to express yourself, then do check out Cece's resources. She's got plenty of helpful freebies. She's got workshops. And of course, she has a community. And we all know that connection is the opposite of addiction. So Cece's website is cecereagan.com and you'll find all the information there. I'll put it in the show notes. So that's it from me. If you'd like a copy of our free ebook, 66 Days to Sobriety, then just drop me a mail at janet at tribesober.com and I'll send you one. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. See you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.